Well, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, with thanks we come to you for your word. It blesses and refreshes us and teaches us that we might walk in your ways. And we pray that as we consider it today, that again you would lead us to Jesus Christ our Lord and the wonder of his redeeming love. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, through our journey so far through the book of Ruth, chapters 1 and 2 have been pretty much plain sailing with some sadness and some bright spots along the way. We've seen Naomi and her husband leave Judah for Moab. We've seen Naomi's husband die and her two sons marry and her two sons die. And we've seen the next move of Naomi and Ruth back to Judah. But from then, it's all been a little bit brighter. We've had introduced into the unfolding story this man, Boaz, godly, generous and kind, who's taken notice of Ruth and begun to provide for her and protect her. Of course, you would be expecting that this would all be leading up to a marriage proposal from Boaz to Ruth, somewhere in this chapter, and it all working out so well in the end. Well, yes and no. There is a marriage proposal, and it does work out, but it's not what you might expect. Ruth chapter 3 is without a doubt the most challenging chapter in the book of Ruth. As you start to enter into the story itself, you might notice that Ruth's actions are filled with much risk. The potential for a very terrible mistake is evident, the consequences of which could easily spell out disaster for the whole family concerned. Consider the reputation of Boaz and the reputation of Ruth Ruth, that are at risk. But Ruth chapter 3 is also the most helpful chapter in the book because it gives us insight into the complexities of relationships on a human level, leading us, of course, to see our relationship with God in yet another light. Now, one of the ways a really great movie director crafts a really great movie is to give the viewers visual clues designed to clue them in to what's to come. And the writer of the book does this, giving us three scenes at three different times in one day, in a 24-hour period. In verses 1 to 5, it's late afternoon. In verses 6 to 13, it's during the night. And in verses 14 to 18, the final scene happens in the morning of the next day. So, The third chapter is a masterclass in Hebrew storytelling but it is storytelling, as I hope you will begin to appreciate, in the service of God's agenda for the upbuilding and the comforting of our souls. So let's look together at three scenes. We've seen three journeys, we've seen three characters, now we come to three scenes and of course next week three outcomes. First in verses 1 to 5, there's the afternoon's conversation. 
the late afternoon shadows are appearing in these verses as Naomi shares her plan with Ruth to secure Boaz as her husband. And at once this sense of alarm is created. And this is why the last two verses, the last verses of chapter 2 explained that the barley and the wheat harvests are now over. That is to say it's been several months since Ruth started to glean in the field of Boaz. And in that time, Naomi, it seems, has been hatching a plan. Already she's advised Ruth to keep close to Boaz and the abundance of the grain that they've received from Boaz is evidence enough that this has been a good move. But grain isn't a husband, is it? Naomi wants more than grain for Ruth. She intends her daughter-in-law much more than that, desiring for her rest, security and peace that in those days can only be found through a husband, through marriage. And verse 2 tells us that Naomi knew that in the law of God there was this mechanism this arrangement that could make this a possibility and a reality. So she says to Ruth, is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? Now this was a very big hint from Naomi to Ruth that Boaz could be the one, not in a worldly romantic sense, not yet anyway, the one who could be the God-appointed relative to provide for the maintenance of the family name and the preservation of the family inheritance in the land. Now to see this takes place, to see this happen, Naomi decides to give the whole scenario a little nudge along. Her intentions are good of course, even though her suggestion to Ruth to wash and anoint herself and put on her cloak and go down to Boaz while he's asleep and uncover his feet and lie down upon them seems, well, to us, a little bit odd, a little bit pushy. No matter which way you look at it, however you take it apart and put back together these words, they remain a little bit problematic, don't they? Some commentators actually read Naomi's words as instructions in effect to dress for seduction. Like put on your prettiest dress and go and win yourself a husband. That's how some people read it. And there are others who see a whole lot more in the text than I think is meant to be there. I think it's an over-reading of the text. Much more plausible is the idea that so far in the book, Ruth has been dressed in the garments of mourning. She's a grieving widow. And perhaps Naomi has concluded the reason that Boaz has been kind but not taking any further steps towards her has been out of respect for Ruth's grief. She's a grieving widow. She's in a time of mourning. And so by changing her clothes, she was was dressing not for seduction, 
but to signal to Boaz that her mourning period was over. And if he was at all interested, she wanted him to know that he need not keep his distance. But even so, the fact still remains that Naomi's advice to Ruth is fraught with moral danger. Twice now in chapter 2, uh, chapter 2 verse 9, on the lips of Boaz and once chapter 2 verse 22, even on the lips of Naomi herself, we are told of the potential for Ruth to be assaulted by the young men who are working in the harvest field. And yet now, suddenly driven by this sense of opportunity, with God's timing, we hear this same Naomi sending her young, single, vulnerable daughter-in-law down to the threshing floor to spend the night alone with the box. And if you add to that, that the prostitutes often carried out their trade on the threshing floors, then the scene is, well, it's time bomb, isn't it? What could go wrong here? A lot of things could go wrong. Add to that still the parallels with the text of Genesis 19 and the story of Lot and those alarm bells ought to be ringing even louder for there we're told that Ruth's direct ancestor, Moab, came into the world through a sexual encounter that should not have been. This clearly was an opportunity for temptation to thrive and for things to go horribly wrong, even despite best intentions. See, sin may sometimes slumber long and appear quite subdued in our hearts and we may have many victories over many temptations, but temptation generally waits to strike when we are least on guard and most at ease. So there's a warning, isn't there? To ensure that we will always watch and pray, as Jesus told his disciples, lest we fall into temptation. For the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember Paul's confession in Romans 7. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. Be on your guard, for when you want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Sin crouches at the door, God told Cain in Genesis 4-7. Sin crouches at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Secondly, in verses 6 to 13, notice how the scene shifts to the evening's liaison. The sun sets in verse 6 as Ruth watches from the shadows as Boaz finally ends his day of work, happily and wearily climbs into bed and it's not until midnight that he's awoken with a sensation of finding someone asleep on his feet. Now, while most of us would have been slow to take in what was going on here, thinking of how Boaz must have felt, Ruth took the initiative in verse 9 by speaking to him and saying, when asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, 
for you are a redeemer. Now hang on, that wasn't in the script. That wasn't what Naomi told her to do. She was simply supposed to present herself to Boaz and lie on his feet and see what happens next. But as it turns out, Ruth has much more insight into the matter than Naomi expected. And the phrase she used, spread your wings over your servant, has two meanings. It could also be translated, spread the corner of your garment over me. Now again, we'd just be clear, she's not trying to seduce him. But she is proposing marriage, which is remarkable in itself, don't you think? And even more remarkable was the fact that she used expressions in her words that God uses to describe his covenant relationship with his people Israel. One scholar says this language signifies the establishment of a new relationship and the symbolic declaration of the husband to provide for the sustenance of the future wife. That's what she's asking. And add to the drama, by framing her proposal in these specific terms, she's actually quoting from words that the first time she and Boaz met. Isn't that beautiful? She's actually quoting his words. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz had said to her that she had come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. And now Ruth says back to Boaz, spread those wings over me. Thank you. And so we see that she's asking by this, that Boaz be the instrument of God's covenant love towards her by fulfilling his obligations to her as her redeemer. One of the ways the Lord will extend and spread his wings over Ruth in covenant love is by Boaz spreading his wings over her in the covenant of marriage. And she really presses that upon him, doesn't she? She pulls no punches. She wants to seal the deal, I suppose, and she says, you are a redeemer. Now we need to understand here that the law of Moses God had made a provision for those in Ruth's situation who were widowed and alone by placing the responsibility of the nearest male relative, hence the idea of a kinsman, a near male relative, to raise up an heir for his brother if his brother had died without leaving a son. Hence the idea of a kinsman or a relative who redeems or buys back that relative's property and any widow into the bargain. That's what the law of Moses said. Now in all of this you've got to feel sorry for poor Boaz, don't you? This is a lot to take in at midnight when you awake to find a woman at your feet in effect appealing for you, not just for a blanket because she's cold but because she wants you to marry her. Well, imagine how Ruth is feeling. She's made herself very vulnerable. She's made her speech, she's taken an enormous risk and now she's waiting for Boaz to reply. Everything hangs, as it were, by this thread. It could go either way. 
He could take advantage of her and who would know? He was, after all, a man of reputation and standing. He may have even publicly shamed her. What a risk. What a risk. It all hangs on what Boaz will reply. Can you feel the tension in the text? What a relief when he dealt with her as he'd been doing all along, with gentleness and godliness and love. See how he responds? For a start, he blesses her. Then he interprets her interest in him as an act of hesed, of steadfast love, of covenant love toward him. She could have gone after younger, richer, stronger men, but she chose him. And then he tells her what he will do. He will do for her what she asks. But, and here's the next note of tension, there is another redeemer. Naomi was right, but she didn't get the whole story right. There is a man who is a closer relative. And this man has a prior claim on his relative's estate. In other words, he can't do for her what she's asking unless the other man pulls out of the bargain. And yet, nevertheless, because Boaz is such a remarkable man of God who cares deeply for Ruth and determines to take care of this business as soon as the sun rises, if the other man will not redeem, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives, he says to her. But it's up to him, the other man. He has first choice. Throughout that long, restless night, Ruth has risked everything in pursuit of rest. That's what Naomi wanted for her. Remember back in verse 1, rest. And now at last Boaz has committed himself with a solemn oath and promise one way or another to make sure that she finds that rest. Now it's tempting at this point to spend our time meditating on Boaz's godliness in the face of sexual temptation. It's certainly a reminder to us that whatever checks and balances we put in place, whatever accountability we have to make sure that we remain godly, temptation always finds a crack, doesn't it? Always finds a way in. I suppose like water, finding every crack in a rock. And in those moments, the last defence has to be a faithful pattern of obedience to God that we have cultivated and accumulated when temptation was not assailing us, so that when it does, there's a kind of a spiritual muscle memory. I remember what to do. I know what to do. I've set this up as a standard. And we find ourselves instinctively responding by fleeing temptation and running to God in Christ for the grace we need. The last defence of a heart against sin when temptation strikes is a pattern and a habit of obedience. We might equally remark upon Ruth at this point. In the Hebrew order of the books of the Bible, the book of Ruth doesn't follow Judges as it does in our English Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible it follows the book of Proverbs. Get this. At the end of of the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 31. You all know Proverbs 31. It's the description of a woman of a noble character. 
Proverbs 31. It says of her, the woman of noble character, her works praise her in the gates, which is actually the language Boaz uses of Ruth in Ruth 3 verse 11. It's translated in, the ver- in our version, all the townsmen know you are a worthy woman. Actually, what he says is, all the gates of my people know you are a worthy woman, a woman of noble character. So Proverbs 31, the woman of noble character becomes the book of Ruth. Who's the woman of worthy character? Well, it's Ruth, isn't it? Ruth who models for us godly courage and determination to live as a true Israelite, a true child of God, no matter the misleading, dangerous counsel of anyone around her, acts more like a Moabiteess. Really, the big point of our passage takes us in a different direction. Remember, it's Boaz's godly obedience that ensures that Ruth finds the rest she needs. He is the ancient agent in her life of the love of God and it's his grace, his chesed, his covenant mercy and when Sir Boaz says there's a redeemer closer than I, it's hard for us to resist in hearing those words, the lesson of the book of Ruth. The great redeemer of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is into the bargain, is the one whom Boaz points to by whose obedience rest is provided. Thirdly, and not so long, this is 14 to 18, we see the morning's conclusion. Morning comes and Boaz, because he's a man of God, continues to protect Ruth's reputation by ensuring that no one learns of her visit to him at midnight. Love, after all, covers a multitude of wrongs. And then in verse 15, he tells her to bring the cloak with which she had covered herself in the night and he fills it with six measures of barley. It's an enormous amount, so much that he has to help her to carry it. And when she staggers back to her mother-in-law, puffing and out of breath, no doubt by the time she arrives, and her mother-in-law says, verse 16, how did you fare, my daughter? And in reply, she dumps more grain. Here's the report, she says, as she wipes the hair from her eyes. More grain. And notice the punchline, which she's been keeping back from the dialogue between Boaz and Ruth from the threshing floor until she gets to Naomi. Boaz said to me, you must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi may have thought that as a matchmaker, she was so clever, so subtle, so invisible, maybe even thinking, Boaz is never going to know who set this up. But Boaz is no fool. So he sends a message to Naomi very carefully crafted message to say, all is well. But notice this phrase, don't go back empty-handed. That's how Naomi described herself. When she came back to the land, when she was angry and bitter with God for the way she thought he had treated her. 
I went away full, but I came back what? I came back empty. Well, here's the message now for Naomi. You don't need to worry. You can really trust the Lord to provide. This massive haul of barley is a kind of a visual aid, a dramatised promise of the truth. This generosity of Boaz will overwhelm and envelop not just Ruth, but also Naomi as well, and that will last and last. And the generosity of God's grace will mean that none of his children will ever be empty. And so we're left with this picture of Naomi, content at last to simply wait and to trust another to do his part of the deal. Well, let's bring it to a close. Let me do that by asking, do you worry about tomorrow? Has the past left you fearful that the days ahead will be as bitter as the days that have gone past? Are you struggling to trust the Lord for what's ahead? Remember, there is no promise in the Scriptures, no promise, that hardship and sorrow or loss or pain will never again intrude into your life as a follower of Jesus. There's no such promise. There's not even a promise that tomorrow will come. But there is a promise that emptiness will never characterise your heart if you come to Jesus, the Redeemer, and trust him. He promised life in all its fullness, even to the point of having overflow. And he is greater than Boaz. And the sign that he can deliver on his promise is not a sack of grain dumped on the ground in front of us. Rather, it is the cross and the empty tomb which stand there to remind us what? That he gave himself for you. There is no emptiness of soul for which he is not the answer and the antidote. There is fullness for empty hearts in him and we know now where to turn in our time of need. Not to our own strength and wisdom, not to the world, not even to one another, but to Jesus, the Redeemer, who is closest of all and whose grace is bigger and wider and deeper than we can ever know. The book of Proverbs tells us there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Well, we can add to that. Add to that. There is a redeemer greater and closer than Boaz. There is a redeemer. We sang it this morning. Jesus, God's own son, and he gave himself, as we heard this morning, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. May the Lord lead us to him who will never ever fail those whom he calls and loves and redeems. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this 
seen these three scenes before us this morning, that 24-hour period in which so much happened in Ruth's life, so much provision for her through the generosity of this man. And we see your hand in this, both in Ruth's trials and also in her blessings. We see your hand in our lives too and we know it all hinges upon the cross where the fullness of your saving love was revealed and the greatness of your grace made known. Thank you that we have a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son. Thank you that we can sing of our Redeemer and his wondrous love for me. Bless us as we remember these things, as we come closer and closer to his birth. We ask this in his name. Amen.